BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CAPITAL200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Good afternoon, Ohenia. And what brings us together in front of a microphone today? We are now uh, ranting (laughs) around a very lesser known incident. Well, Mm. quote unquote incident. We might say that it was actually uh, massacred concerning certain uh, prisoners of war camp. Actually, here in New Zealand. Yes, exactly. The Featherstone Prisoners of War camp, whom it's uh, uh, which is located at the southeast of uh, Wellington, North Island, North Island of New Zealand. Now, this camp was uh, has a bit of a history of being a train. Well, it's it's been in the military for quite some time. Uh, It was initially established as a training camp for mm-hmm. soldiers in World War One, yeah. and after the war in the 1920s, it was uh, dismantled, but then over, uh, over time and, and as New Zealand was needed as a location to house prisoners of war from the Allied campaign uh, and taking Guadalcanal and other areas in the Pacific Islands, it was brought back into existence as a prisoner of war camp and was hastily constructed to house 450 people or yeah. prisoners, which, uh, yeah, needless to say, it absolutely, it rapidly and... and uh, Became overblown yeah. by prisoners. Yeah, but... but where did these prisoners came from on the Pacific campaign mm-hmm. during the Second World War? The Allied forces launched the Operation Watchtower, in which they were pretty much going after uh, the Japanese uh, Imperium. Mm-hmm. So most of this happened around the Solomon Islands, and the, particularly in the offensive at Guadalcanal, which saw some pretty full-on intense fighting, and the U.S. Army eventually recaptured the island and obviously took prisoners mm-hmm. from the Japanese forces, including the Navy and the Japanese Army. Um, 
they were spread out. The the prisoners were divided between countries such as Australia and also New Zealand, which is the obvious focus of today's investigation. The very first prisoners that were taken uh, taken there, they were, of course, Japanese, but they didn't belong to the Japanese army, to be precise. There were more uh, civilians that had been taken to the Solomon Islands mm. in, in the intention of building, well, uh, military... Um, well, military encampments and logistics are effectively contractors. Contractors, and, exactly. Yeah, basically contractors um, who got weren't soldiers and got caught up in the yeah in the fighting and as such were captured uh, fairly quickly um, as they weren't part of the uh, military the Japanese military yeah so the first prisoners to arrive to the Featherstone prisoners of war camp uh, arrived there on September 1942 after the well the final battle the mm-hmm. naval battle of one Wanag- while the canal was won, and um, these people were um, no combatants, and they were pretty much they submitted to the yeah. logic. Mm. Uh, they, they weren't quite as indoctrinated as a lot of the other soldiers and, and uh, seamen of the, the Japanese imperial forces. And as such, were quite docile. You could one might say. You um, could say in in a nice way because yeah. why would you have to be submitted to be a prisoner? But uh, mm. it's war logics. Well, that as well as the uh, ideology that was being enforced in the Japanese military, which was the uh, Senkinkun. Yes which is instructions for the battlefield. Excuse us for our bad pronunciations because, mm-hmm. well, Chris knows a bit of Japanese and I only know what I know from watching anime, so I don't really know much. No, no. but um, this very fierce sort of Bushido-esque battlefield uh, ideology was brutally enforced by the uh, officers on the the lower ranking uh, soldiers, and as such, you know, became the the guiding ideology of you know the whole death before dishonor, and that to be taken prisoner and not killed in the glory of battle in the name of the emperor was considered a, a spiritual death, and that the soldier could only be redeemed by finding death in rebellion against the captors or in battle or or, or in, yeah in battle um never yeah. lived to experience shame as a prisoner reads the sinkinkun but the issue is that it only gave um, instructions of like in the battlefield i'm, I'm guessing it was more like an, a spiritual guide like to mm. enhance the spirits of the combatants mm. the warriors but it gave little to no instructions of how to behave if you were a prisoner because, well, they weren't expected to be taken prisoners. No, that's absolutely right. And on that note as well, Japan was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention, Mm -hmm. which is fairly important in the events that occurred at Featherstone 
and the surrounding downfall. In, downfall, or the, <laughs> the you know the influence, the 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 uh, rippling effect that certain events had that led to the uh, led to the the cause of the of the massacre. Yeah. So first off, I was almost forgetting to acknowledge our main source, which is the Feathersons Chronicles, mm-hmm. A Legacy of War, which was written by Mike Nicolaidi, um Kiwi Kiwi author who did a throw how do you say throw throw Thora. Exactly. A very intense investigation on such incident or like we say such massacre. Mm. And it a very well basically went through the sea of official paperwork from the military, and I mean not only the New Zealand one, but also the American correspondence, the British correspondence, mm-hmm. the Swiss correspondence, the Swiss correspondence, yeah. and correspondence as well, and mm-hmm. also had the um, had the chance to interview many of the officials the guards and even some of the Japanese prisoners that were kept in Featherstone mm. on the last uh, century. So we were saying that the first prisoners to arrive were civilians, so they didn't um, they submitted to the life in the prisoners of war camp, which it wasn't really it wasn't really bad at the beginning, so it was uh, overpopulated, but all in all uh, the prisoners got they had to do forced labor, mm-hmm. of course, but they had free time. They had uh, water and they food, had medicine, food, medicine, and such. On December of 1942, approximately uh, 250 prisoners arrived, and they were all from the military mm-hmm. of uh, the Japanese uh, Imperial Army, and 120. 120 of them were Navy men from the watership Furutaga who, that had been sunk by the Americans at Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. And this is where the um, frictions started to become more apparent because mm-hmm. the army men, and this is a thing, some of them mm-hmm. were would took the words of the Sunghinkum uh, mm-hmm. very literally they they weren't happy about mm. being prisoners of course they um, they felt a sense of shame because they were receiving the food and they were sleeping in the beds of the enemy mm. so to speak uh, but what really angered them was the idea to being done being forced to do labor mm. they weren't sure about this and when we look at the archives, it seems like the people in the Featherstone were just doing like a usual gardening, cleaning of the compounds, and some of them were making even furniture. Yeah. They were planning to build a, a factory mm. furniture mm-hmm. in there, just, I'm guessing, to keep the prisoners occupied yeah. until the conflict would end. Mm-hmm. But many of the military men, the Japanese prisoners of war, uh, were very suspicious. They would uh, just wouldn't work in any way that could benefit the enemy. Mm-hmm. There were 122 New Zealand soldiers that were deployed to guard the facility, and most of them were part from green reservoirs that weren't suitable for overseas um, conflicts. Conflicts, yeah. either because of their age or even 
uh, physical conditions or slight, you know, I guess you'd say, yeah, slight maladies that, uh, while they were perfectly capable with, you know, carrying out day-to-day duties, it sort of uh, precluded them from taking part in major physical and rigorous uh, military Yes, they weren't really re- ready to become uh, the guards from prisoners. And this is something that uh, Mike Nicolaidi um, makes very clear in his book, that there was a particular hatred mm. and also fear, also ignorance, particularly against the Japanese, because, okay, Second World War was aimed to end with the Nazi mm. regime. But, okay, this is Nicolaidi's opinion, and I think he's, uh, I'm going to say, I, I agree with his opinion. Like, perhaps the New Zealanders, the Kiwis could relate a bit more, kind of, mm. with um, the German enemies because New Zealand is a colonized country. I mean, it's not a colony anymore. But um, I'm going to say they could relate a bit more mm. with an Occidental culture than with the Japanese culture that yeah. was completely well, com- very different. Yeah, it was, it was from a very different cultural background to theirs and also at the time there was quite a lot of effectively propaganda on all sides Mm but um, definitely in in New Zealand and Australia there was a lot of propaganda from the from the the war ministries that was focusing on raising morale of the population by alienating and uh, demonizing the Japanese. Um, mm. If you look at some of it now, you people, most people would be absolutely mortified and absolutely aghast at some of the incredibly racist, racist. and <laughs> yeah. you know almost school, you know schoolyardish um, depictions and and characterization of Japanese soldiers and Japanese culture which, again, was there to reassure and, and bolster confidence and morale in the, in the soldiers, and, and, but mainly in, in the population as well. So a lot of people went into the military with an overinflated sense of superiority, I guess you could say, against the Japanese, but also that they were somehow to be looked down upon um, because they were from a different culture but ethnicity, ethnicity mm-hmm. as well um which uh yeah was definitely something as well that you know played into the events that occurred at, at the featherstone camp not only uh, the japanese would uh, follow the sankinkum mm-hmm. like i said but most of them would actually were completely ignorant of the existence of the Geneva Convention. And that's Mm. actually something that we can put the responsibility on the Japanese government, to be fair, because what I read is that a Japanese signed but didn't ratify the word of the Geneva Convention because the Japanese army pressured the government not to do so. Mm -hmm. So when they arrived to the camp all these military veterans, uh, many of them uh, didn't even know about what uh, their rights and obligations of, as prisoners mm. were. The fact that they, in theory, by law, the laws of 
war and the Geneva Convention were assured safety and food and, you know, decent treatment. Um, obviously not five-star treatment, but they were, they were in theory meant to be provided with adequate accommodation, food, medicine, and to be, uh, not be treated as effective slaves, but however, they were, they were still prisoners and, uh, were allowed to be Forced to work. Forced to work, effectively. That was the real issue. Yeah. Um, when we look at the Featherstone, Featherstone Chronicles, uh, Mike Nicolaiti got to interview a lieutenant, a junior lieutenant that was in the um, Furutaka, uh, Toshio Adachi, who was uh, one of the older and a fairly respectable authority within the camp. So... When we read um, his version of the events, we found out that uh, the more radicalized extremist people within the prisoners uh, were actually very few. There were maybe 30. There was this group that was actually pushing to commit, uh, that was pushing their officials to commit uh, seppuku, that mm. is a ritual suicide. ritual suicide, like samurai, like samurais, mm. exactly. Who had um, been bested in combat, effectively, and that that's how one mitigated the shame of defeat. Exactly. Was to ritually commit suicide by, usually by slicing into their own stomachs. But actually, this man, this old man that probably passed away by now, Adachi, he wasn't keen on that. He really understood that uh, the Senghinkun was... He didn't take literally the words in the manual. So mm. he was really trying to keep as many of his mates alive and trying to avoid conflict as far as possible. Mm. So it was uh, Toshio Adachi and other Japanese officers that approached Lieutenant Colonel Donald Donaldson, whom was at that time the camp commandment in Featherstone mm. uh, camp, well, basically telling him that, uh, well, some of his men expected Adachi to kill himself mm. and to show the character of a Japanese warrior, and he wasn't keen on that. Mm. So he was really trying to get some dialogue and get as very little people hurt afterwards. Mm. So um, after that, uh, he actually managed to identify the extremists among the prisoners, and they were taken into a sort of uh, suicide, uh, suicide, suicide watch. watch. Yeah, they were taken away from the compound number two. Mm -hmm. So the first prisoners, the laborers, mm -hmm. the ones that were more... Number, no, they were in number one. They were in number one, and the war veterans were in compound number two. Two, yeah. So... So he says that he addressed the whole compound and asked those who wanted to commit mm -hmm. ritual suicide to step up. And there were actually 30 of them and mm -hmm. they were taken into the suicide watch for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, they were taken back to the compound number two. two. It seems like there were some of them that were also a bit hostile against the prisoners in the compound number one, mm. they would frown upon them. Yep, they'd call out through the fence as the uh, prisoners of compound one were marching off to uh, work 
mm-hmm. their work assignments during the day and yeah would heckle them and say that they were being complicit with the enemy and they had been neglecting her their Japanese character mm-hmm. so already tensions were starting to mount among between the prisoners themselves mm-hmm. which after a while and you know, the tensions sort of simmering um, yeah it, it all came to a head so on February 23rd a Japanese prisoner of war stood on the wire, barbed wire fence of the number two compound and he screamed and jailed at the people in the compound number one mm-hmm. to stop working and oddly enough they decided to join in a pacific protest so they went back to the hatches mm-hmm. and this is when the next day we can see that the Kiwi military started messing up really bad mm-hmm. because on the 24th Adachi, Lieutenant Adachi and mm. his men woke up to discover that um, the colonel was asking them to double the regular number of prisoners to work on duty. Mm. They were asking them to give up a uh, hundred and five prisoners of war to work. Mm-hmm. And this was really a disciplinary measure that the Kiwis were taking against the Japanese mm-hmm. in their defiance to not work in the previous days so Adachi asked for an interpreter because they had an interpreter mm. what uh, they hadn't communicated to the whole of the camp was the Geneva Convention mm-hmm. uh, conditions for prisoners of war so they had been asked also to work uh, outside the camp which mm-hmm. was something completely unusual and on the morning on the 25th of February, February 25th of 1943, the laborers in the compound number one uh, began their usual routine. routine, morning routine. Meanwhile, the men in the compound number two just wouldn't get out of the huts. They were in complete Rebellion. Yeah. I mean, not sure if... Well, revolt, I guess. I mean, but the thing is that the word word, uh, revolt sometimes implies um, a violent violent action. And what they were trying to do was uh, a sitting. Yes. Well, they they effectively embarking on a campaign of civil disobedience. Well, I don't know if you can call this military disobedience. Project Up from Comcast is working to help advance digital equity and build a world of unlimited possibilities. From connecting people to the internet to opening doors for innovators, entrepreneurs, storytellers, and creators, we can help create a future that benefits generations to come. Over the next 10 years, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach tens of millions of people with the opportunities and resources they need to succeed in an increasingly digital world. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. Did you know that with Xfinity Internet, you get fast, reliable speeds? You could save up to $400 a year on your wireless bill when you add Xfinity Mobile. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Compares pricing of top carriers. Xfinity Internet required. Exactly. So, uh, Toshio and Ishimura, another lieutenant from the same ship, asked for a meeting with Donaldson once again since he had been kind of 
diplomatic mm-hmm. with him, with them. But Donaldson stayed in his office. In his place, the camp ad- adjutant. Camp adjutant. Which is lieutenant. effectively the, the supervisor. So instead, the lieutenant James Malcolm, the mm-hmm. camp adjutant, was sent to talk to Nishimura and Toshio Adachi. This is where the stories began, the different versions of mm. the, the Featherstone Massacre start to come out because according to the story of Adachi, um, after trying to negotiate with Malcolm to have a meeting with Donaldson, what Malcolm decided to do was to take Nishimura by the force. He asked two guards that were unarmed, these mm-hmm. people were unarmed, to take Nishimura away and in this uh, raffle mm-hmm. a Japanese prisoner of war was actually bayoneted bayonet. in a leg and according to the Didn't... Japanese version he ac- he accidentally got his fingers cut off because he was cl- clasping the bayonet as it was being yeah, removed exactly. and which yeah, it actually managed to sever all of his fingers. All of his fingers. All of his fingers as he was clutching it. Although in the official... Um, New Zealand version of events. Of events, mm-hmm. this didn't happen, but there is a polite found um, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. like uh, Records. Records that uh, some prisoner of war was taken to a hospital because he was injured by a bayonet in that very same day. So I am guessing that this is not a coincidence mm. at all. So we had, at this point, 240 prisoners mm-hmm. that were either sit or squatting close together in a quadrangular area between the completed huts and the southeast mm-hmm. end of the compound. And there was an old concrete foundation in which there was a... There was some sort of podium from which Malcolm and the translators, uh, Captain Alexander Ashton and Lieutenant John Thomas, were talking, were addressing the prisoners. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese uh, have already seen that uh, Nishimura had been taken by the force mm-hmm. and allegedly that a prisoner had been stabbed with a bayonet, uh, yet they kept sit in mm-hmm. their place. This is what happened following. So yeah, I was saying that the prisoners were sitting, were doing a sitting, properly speaking, between the huts. In the meantime, uh, I think it was Malcolm who had ordered a couple... Of the guards. 46 guards. 46 guards, yeah. To take a position basically surrounding from all sides to the... Yeah. Yeah, there were several guards stationed on various roofs. Seven of them had taken places places in the roofs of the latrines, so they were above all of the rest. Mm. Most of the guards were armed with rifles. However, there were several, including one guard in particular, who were armed under orders with automatic Thompson machine guns or Tommy guns. James Malcolm would say to a court of inquiry a month later, quote, I decided upon a show of arms as my next move. There being no remaining expedient apparent 
to me to get over the situation. So what Malcolm says is that he took a revolver from another guard and he allegedly shot a warning shot just above the head of Adachi, the Japanese. He claimed that the, Jap the prisoners... The Japanese prisoner stood in the same place, so he sh decided to shoot Adachi in a shoulder, injuring him. Mm. And this was perhaps the biggest mistake he could have done, because according to what Adachi would say afterwards, and also the, um, and also according some even some Kiwi guards mm. that were interviewed by Night Nicolaiti, there wasn't such warning sight. They claim that Malcolm shoot Adachi straight away in the arm with such bad luck that the bullet passed through his arm and actually impact on the head of a prisoner that was just behind him, killing him mm. instantly, indeed. So seeing that an authority, Adachi, had been shot, It seems like a prisoner had been killed, perhaps accidentally in a negligent way. Mm. The prisoners started to roar, and according to what the official version of the Kiwis, they ran en masse to the guards. Mm -hmm. And this is when a guard called Jack Owen, who was one of the ones that was on the latrine roofs with a Tommy gun, nonetheless started to shoot spontaneously with without having without receiving any any order to fire and unsurprisingly many of the other guards easily joined in the shooting mm -hmm. it took between 15 to 30 seconds before after being told to stop the fire mm -hmm. several times by Malcolm and other officers that Well, they definitely mm. stopped shooting. In that moment, uh, 31 Japanese prisoners died instantly and another 92 were wounded, mm -hmm. 17 of whom would die in the coming days. Yeah. And even 10 guards, 10 Kiwi guards, were injured and one of them, Pelvin, received a bullet in his own back and he was the, well, the, only, prison, um, the only Kiwi. To die on that day, so that really tells how um, just the the wild firing into the crowd that was going on, where they weren't even they weren't aware even... of ricochet and crossfire yeah. into their own into their own um, fellow soldiers. Exactly, and Len James, a military a veteran that was. Uh, also interviewed by Nicolaiti and several others would have told him that they uh, saw a um, guard that was, how do you say, trigger happy? Trigger happy, yeah, de definitely trigger happy. And this was nonetheless but Jack Owen. Mm. So well, could, you explain the, <laughs> could you explain the listeners what trigger happy means, Chris? Well, trigger happy is effectively a... You know, a term to describe someone who's eagerly or over-eager and, and somewhat bloodthirsty. So they were mm -hmm. effectively looking for an excuse to mow someone down or shoot someone, effectively. So Eric Thompson, a retired civil engineer 
and a former army intelligence officer was also on that day on Featherstone and was as well approached by Nicolaiti in his book and he pretty much was one of the first people to actually acknowledge the fact that there wasn't a warning shoot from uh, James Malcolm and I'm going to quote the book Eric also speaks of the New Zealanders' overall lack of understanding of the Japanese way of thinking. He says, One can only think the New Zealand side blundered into the incident without really knowing what the outcome was going to be. For one thing, it thought it could threaten the Japanese with death. Now the Japanese, being prisoners of war, had been through a psychological process for several months during which to be threatened with death by having a man aim a pistol at you was just a laugh. They would think, well, this is at last, here, here is my fate, which I deserve. Mm -hmm. So if Malcolm thought that threatening the prisoners with a gun was going to be a good idea, it turned out to be exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like we say, there were very few prisoners that were really keen on doing a heroic death in the camp, Nishimura and Adachi were really looking forward to uh, finding the most civil outcome. But they just wouldn't work for the enemy. And then we have the aftermath mm -hmm. of the shooting incident. Firstly, after the incident, mm -hmm. the Red Cross were allowed on the camp to conduct a an investigation. And their initial um, outcome was that oh, they found that Owen had fired most of the bullets that had caused a lot of the carnage and that even though it was allegedly in retaliation and an act of emergency, the shoot, the, the ferocity and bloodlust of the, uh, of the firing squad of the, of the guards was excessive and yeah. went on f for a lot longer than it, it needed to uh, to re retain order or safety of, of the guards on the ground. So an official investigation was done shortly after a month. So according to the official uh, report, mm. it had been, it was stabbed an incident that mm. they use extreme force, but um, it really makes it look like the... Um, the actions were warranted under the circumstance as the, as the prisoners were about to riot and take yes. control of the camp and possibly get hold of some weapons and overrun the... Uh, I mean, actually, Adachi was about to get... How would you say? Sur? I don't know if that's the word. Mm -hmm. But uh, at some point, uh, there was this um, report in which uh, Adachi was going to be investigated for uh, starting a mutiny mm -hmm. shortly after the incident. But And this is curious. It was uh, even Donaldson who testified in favor. Mm of Adachi saying that he had always been very reasonable reasonable with him. Mm. So you see the <clears throat> government of New Zealand really tried to push the idea that mm -hmm. it was going to be a mutiny. And that was really much more like um, a gossip mm. within 
the same camp yeah. because they've had had this um, issue with the suicide squad, if you wish. Mm. And perhaps there were one a few prisoners. They were the youngest. Mm. Uh, they were petty, uh, younger petty oh. officers, Japanese mm. officers that wanted to go through with that. Um, at some point, yes, there was this um, rumor mm. that they were going to try to steal guns from the very same camp and then continue the warfare in mm-hmm. New Zealand land. But this was uh, never, it, it never happened. And also when the inquiry was done and when they were searching the bodies of the prisoners, uh, the Japanese prisoners that were dead, they could only found their tools their working tools. Mm. They didn't have any sort of weapon at all aside from a rock mm. or a hammer. And if you if we consider that they were they were probably going to be forced to labor, it it's not a surprise that they had their own tools mm. with them, really. It should also be pointed out that a lot of the evidence and um it should also be pointed out that a lot of the evidence and the report was heavily modified and overwritten by the British army and not just the New Zealand mm-hmm. army uh, wanting to suppress uh, reports of a wartime home soil effective massacre, which was important to keeping the morale and the wartime uh, enmity at a, at a high point at a hype against the enemy, the last thing they would want is the local uh, peoples to develop any form of sympathy towards their wartime enemy. Yeah, they were also afraid, perhaps, of some sort of retaliation from the Japanese government. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Peter Fraser, in his first public statement to New Zealanders on the shooting on the 1st of March of 1943, said... Quote, the unfortunate results of the incidents are to be regretted, but in the circumstances, firm action on the part of the guards was necessary to quell the riot and restore order. But according to a Red Cross investigation that was done, it is now that we know that it was actually Jack Owen, the one that shot the most. The most. And the fact that he did have a automatic machine gun, we had a machine gun, that was set to automatic, whereas other soldiers, other guards who were also armed with the Thompson machine guns actually well, had them set to single shot. And Owen didn't just come to this uh, bloodthirsty conclusion for no reason. It looks that he might actually had a personal reason to hate the Japanese indeed. Yeah, and why... we are not justifying. We're no. not condemning this. The reason Jack Owen was holding such a grudge against the Japanese is because in the previous year, on October the 15th, his brother, Charles Owen, was beheaded by the Japanese military and alongside with 21 other prisoners of war um, in the small island of Tarawa. They were kept as prisoners during the push along um, 
Private Charles Owen was one of 14 New Zealand Army personnel who had been volunteered to assist 10 New Zealand Post and Telegraph Department radio operations in the islands of Kiribati at the northwest of Fiji in early 1941. So the Coast Watchers were actually there before the attack on Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. by, by the Japanese army. And the official outbreak of the Pacific War on December 1941. Mm-hmm. Private Owen had been captured and had been kept in a lunatic asylum. The execution of him and his other 22, mate, 22 mm-hmm. mates was uh, basically a retaliation for the attacks that the US Army was perpetrating around that area Mm -hmm. during October of 1942. Mm -hmm. And since Japan didn't oblige to the Geneva Convention Convention of War, Mm. they took the liberty to, well, take these prisoners and decapitate them. Mm -hmm. And they were actually three witnesses of such execution, Mm -hmm. an Icelander, from the Tarawa Island, and two French missionaries that were around. It is hard to tell whether Jack Owen knew if his brother was dead by the time he was on Featherstone, but by the end of the year, they knew that these uh, these, uh, Kiwi army men, well, this Coast Guard, had been captured Mm. by the Japanese. While it's not clear, it is theorized it is believed that he it's quite possible that he did know as information had been trickling back over over time as uh, servicemen were returning for R&R or coming back injured um, and during their uh, during the recuperation were passing on information about you know about various uh, other servicemen um, and and family members and it was disseminating back into the public in in this case uh, back to Jack Owen, which mm-hmm. would go some way to explaining his absolute Blood loathing thirst. and bloodlust <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when it came to uh, as the bodies of the deceased from the Featherstone incident, uh, the Japanese were uh, incinerated, uh, cremated, mm-hmm. and to this day it's not known where though the uh, cremated remains. Are. So there are official documents that uh, indicate that they were taken in the same ship uh, where the prisoners of war were taken once the war was over. But there were also some rumors that they might have been buried in the very same ground. Mm. And there were rumors also that the same bodies and not the ashes were, were buried in Featherstone. But there's also, but, but there are it is registered that these people were taken and cremated in a crematorium crematorium near Wellington. So perhaps it's safe to say that they were cremated, but it's not 100% sure if they were really returned to Japan. We may never know what happened. And well, and to be fair, the same with the 22 uh, Kiwis that were killed in Tarawa. In the Tarawa Island, mm-hmm. one of them was Charles Owen. Those bodies were never recovered no. as well. And yet, you know, Adachi went back to New Zealand three times after the war was over. Mm. 
in one occasion it was in 1986 in which he took part of a religious ceremony in remembrance of those who were killed there so um, I guess we could say he doesn't have any hard feelings against the Kiwis after all. Or at least he acknowledges that the events that happen in war are an extreme side of humanity and don't necessarily reflect on the whole of a population of a country or a people outside of wartime and that while certain events and people might not be forgiven that as part of his own healing process you could say that Mm -hmm. he remembers the events but in some in some form uh, does partially forgive some of the well does partially forgive the people of New Zealand for the events that occurred in in the country during the war. And all that is left nowadays in remembrance of the Japanese prisoners that were killed, it's a small group of cherry trees. Mm-hmm. And at the entrance of the group is a small plaque, and on it it's written the translation of a 17th century haiku by Matsuo Basho that says... Behold the summer grass, all that remains of the dreams of warriors. We have to say that New Zealand never um, took any sort of, uh, I don't know if to use the word punishment, Mm. for such a massacre. That's why when you look it up in the internet, you're mostly going to find it as the Featherstone incident. Mm. I think mainly to save face or to not cause a massive international outcry and bring down the the Geneva Convention on the on, on New Zealand for war crimes that the New Zealand and definitely the British uh, military had to do a, a lot of fancy creative paperwork and uh, interview coaching of the involved military to uh, not make the incident as serious as it actually was and to absolutely downplay it and that effectively all of the all of the people involved were utterly sworn to secrecy mm-hmm. and many of them carried the the knowledge and the and the trauma of of what really happened several of whom did speak out in the end some of whom made deathbed confessions and others who ended up taking it to their graves although it's said that the they never forgot what happened and it did haunt them and definitely although at the time wasn't known to their friends and family that it absolutely left an indelible mark on their lives that contributed to a lot of their uh, a lot of their behavior so where can our listeners find us on the social media Chris? well we are all over the internet we have presence on spotify on youtube we've got facebook page we're on instagram we're on twitter we have an email a history of evil men at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And where else can they find us? We have a Patreon profile. That's right. Patreon.com slash A History of Evil Men. Mm-hmm. And if you look for us on various other platforms for podcasts, you should be able to find us. And once again, we shall leave you with the beautiful tones provided to us by Steph Animal.